Athletics Football GM Podcast. And now, the Athletics Mike Sando and former NFL Executive of the Year, Randy Muir. Welcome to the Football GM Podcast. Mike Sando here of The Athletic along with the GM, Randy Mueller. Lots of free agency talk today. A little extra focus, I think, too, in a specific area. Maybe a specific team because for the first time, what a great honor. Maybe it's a great honor. We'll ask Mickey Loomis afterward if it's a great honor to be the first guest ever of the Football GM Podcast. But Mickey Loomis, the GM of the New Orleans Saints, is really a perfect first guest because he goes back with Randy Mueller. They worked 20 years together. They they started out together in 1983 uh, with the Seahawks. They've got some stories to tell today. In fact, there's only two people in the history of the world that have been NFL Exec of the Year while being general manager of the Saints, and they're both on this podcast. So uh, <laughs> they're definitely the stars of the show today. Mickey, welcome. Well, thanks. Uh, I appreciate that a lot, Mike. I appreciate being uh, on here with Randy, especially. Look, I wouldn't be uh, in New Orleans. I wouldn't be the GM of the New Orleans Saints without Randy Mueller. He, uh, look, he means so much to me, uh, so much to my career. Um, and and uh, man, I just can't say enough good things about uh, Randy. And we've we've had a lot of shared experiences. That's for sure. Mickey, you're one of eight GMs to win a Super Bowl. You've been in the role since 2002. I think you've been the GM longer than anyone else has had that title. I know Belichick is effectively the GM, but uh, a long time. And you've you have been really busy with the Saints this offseason. But I want to talk about your history with with Randy and and let's just start off. I mean, how did you even get started with the Seahawks in 1983? Yeah, well, look, I had, my original goal was to uh, become an athletic director at a small college and coach basketball. And so, you know, oftentimes I'll get somebody say, man, you've got a dream job. And I said, yeah, I do, but it's not my dream. It wasn't my dream. <laughs> you know, my dream was to be at a small college like Linfield where Randy went or, or uh, you know, a Seattle U or someplace like that, be an athletic director as well as a basketball coach. And, you know, I got sidetracked. I heard about a job that was available um, with the Seahawks. And I was lucky enough to get an interview. I think I was one of like 200 candidates. And I'll never forget, I, I'd gone through the preliminary process. The last interview was down to me and one other person. And I had to drive from, um, from Eugene, Oregon to Seattle to have a, a last interview with John Nordstrom. And so I make that drive. It's, you know, five and a half hours. Uh, I go to the uh, flagship store in New Orleans. I sit and wait um, for Mr. Nordstrom to see me. Uh, I walk into his office. I sit down. He said, do you smoke? And I said, no. <laughs> and then he said, are you married? I said, yes. He said, well, he jumped up, shook my hand, said, we'll let you know. <laughs> so, I drove five and a half hours back uh, to Eugene. This is pre-cell phones, right? So I'm driving back. I'm just steaming because what I thought was he'd already decided to go with the other person. And I was just infuriated, mad, cussing to myself, probably cussing him out too um, for, for making me drive 10 hours just to hear, you know, two little questions when I knew I wasn't going to get the job. I get back to Eugene and later that night I got the call from, uh, Dave Mackey, who, who worked for him and said, hey, you got the job. Mm -hmm. And um, 
look, I went there with the intent of being there a few years and adding that to my resume and then getting back on my career path. And I never did. Um, you know, I think Randy started right before me, a few months before me. Uh, he had been been working there during the summers, but we uh, immediately hit it off, had a great relationship and, and grew up together uh, for the next 15 years in Seattle. Crazy time, that's for sure. I, I remember the, and as we know, the years just tick off left and right. And it, it kind of brings me in, and we chatted a little bit about it. You know, we're in the middle of free agency right now where NFL teams are scrambling. They're trying to be cap compliant, all the above. And and I know you guys have gone through all kinds of, you know, uh, gymnastics on paper to get your cap in order. But it brings me back to some of the first years in free agency. And, and in particular, that 1996 year when when uh, Ken Baring decided that he wanted to move the Seahawks to L.A. And I remember waking up at that Super Bowl in Phoenix that year. I don't know if you remember, we were staying at the Biltmore. And they both called us in the room, him and David, his son, and said, hey, come up. This is the morning of this, the game, Sunday morning. He said, come up to our room. We'll have some coffee, you know, just sit around and BS. And an hour later, when we were in the room, I remember both of us kind of looking at each other with big eyes as he said, and oh, by the way, we're going to move the team. And can you guys just keep the team running while we're doing all this? So this <laughs> breakfast meeting turned out to be a, a change in our lives that we never anticipated. You could have given us 10 guesses each and we would have never thought that. But yeah, right. I mean, all of a sudden he wants to move the team to LA and oh, by the way, can you two keep the team running? And it just led to a spiral of events during free agency that year that I think I don't I've never heard of or seen anything like it. I don't know if any of that comes back to your memories or not. Well, it does. It was crazy. Uh, look, you're right. There couldn't have been anything said that would have been more shocking than, hey, we're going to we're going to move to L.A. And <laughs> by the way, we're going to do it in, in a month or two months or whatever it was. And 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 you got to keep the, the uh, team together. And by the way, we got to find a place to practice and uh, yeah. and all these different things that start running through your mind. And, and, and the trucks agent, will be there yeah. in 10 days. The trucks are coming in 10 yeah. days, by the way. So get everything packed up and ready to go. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> and no one else knows. Yeah, and nobody way, else knows. We're going to leave it up to you guys to tell uh, uh, everyone, which was really a traumatic experience oh. in and of itself. Um, yeah, that, that was crazy. I, you know, I've been through two of these crazy, traumatic, unusual circumstances. This one and, and then what happened here with Katrina. And I would say the one we're talking about in Seattle might've been more traumatic uh, because there was, there was uh, but both, both circumstances are a lot of uncertainty and right. uncertainty uh, um, is difficult to deal with in our business. Well, we had just hired Dennis Erickson the year before. And, and I remember the three of us tooling around Newport beach. And this is three guys from the Northwest, right? We thought we were going to be in Seattle our whole lives and, <laughs> and, and no, 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 you know, more than a month later, we're tooling around Newport Beach looking for a place to live out of the blue. Right. You know, so right. our worlds had been turned upside down. The team and we were remodeling Rams Park at the time where the Rams had been. And that was going to be our new home. And so we really had no office. The trucks had come to Kirkland. They had loaded everything up. We had moved into a Marriott in Bellevue that doesn't even exist anymore. <clears throat> and we had these makeshift right. offices. We kind of were under the radar because people had had bomb threats and everything else coming our way and like it was our fault in, in Seattle. So we kind of set up a yeah. clandestine operation in Bellevue and had a satellite office 
in the trunk of our car in Rams Park in LA. So it was really crazy dynamics. And, and again, free agency started. We're, we're trying to build our team. And like I had mentioned to you before, we're building our team out of the trunk of a rental car in Rams Park right. where there's no offices we can even go into. Crazy. Right. And, and uh, look, a lot of things were done. Uh, obviously, we, you know, we use the phone to, to make a lot of contacts and talk with agents and players. But in that era of free agency, a lot and it was still relatively new yeah. to the NFL. And a lot of that was more face to face with the player as well as the agent and and uh, much different than it is today when you can when you can, uh, you know, just pick up the phone talk to an agent or FaceTime or Zoom call with a player and an agent um, and get things done in a matter of minutes over the phone. It took oftentimes took days and face-to-face meetings and, and uh, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, salesman skills much more so uh, then than today. And, and uh, yeah, it was crazy. That's what I was going to say. Like in the day, you know, you'd have free agent visits, right? So-and-so's coming in and they might parade him in a press conference to make it look like the team's being active. But you don't know if he's using you to, to do the deal and it's going to get done next week. How do you do that from a trunk of a car? Did you guys have free agent visits? I mean, what happened? <laughs> well, we didn't have any place for him to visit during that time. So we were trying to re- re-sign our own guys. But I'll just say this. One guy in particular that we did sign and he was a Pro Bowl safety from the Bengals, Daryl Williams. He just wanted to play for Dennis Erickson. So here's a guy that we signed for relatively big money at that time who didn't even know where we were yeah. going to play. Are we going to be in L.A.? Are we going to be in Seattle? He didn't care. He wanted to play for Dennis. And so we used that to our advantage. And and he signed and committed to us. Either one, he wanted to get out of Cincinnati bad. Or two, he truly yeah. loved Dennis because he want, it, it happened. And, and we had no answers on our end except to say yes. And, and, and there were other guys like that as well. Yeah. And look, at that time – and you know, you're, you're selling what you're selling is the head coach. Yeah. Um, that was very similar here after Katrina, you know, the only thing I had to sell was a new, um, uh, was a new head coach who, who had some charisma and, and, uh, energy and, and, but that's difficult, you know, that, that's going to appeal to a certain, you know, group, but it's not going to appeal to the masses. And, um, yeah, th- those, those were crazy times. Much you know, different than today. Yeah, this the whole line of communication, like Mickey said, was different. I remember at the end of this one day in L.A., us getting on a plane to fly home, and we uh, consummated a deal. You remember the old telephones you had on the airplane where you'd like slide your credit card to get out, you know, before anything else? I remember both of us, and neither one of us didn't, didn't really know what we were doing. We were trying to make this phone work on the airplane at 30,000 feet flying back to Seattle <laughs> to conclude our deal with Dean Wells, our starting middle linebacker. So it was just right. crazy. And it, it just makes me shake my head. I hear these teams complain nowadays about this or that. I say, give me a break. Don't tell me how rough the water is. Just get in the freaking boat. Let's go. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's real free agency. That was the wild, wild west, so to speak. It was the wild west. And, and look, you remember this, Randy, you know, our, I think my, what I recall is our first big free agent from another team was Chad Brown. Yeah. <laughs> and look, we, we, I remember we sent the plane out to get him. Yeah. Dennis um, and I were there at 1201 and picked him up. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Uh, came back him and his wife mm-hmm. and spent all day. Basically we had him sequestered <laughs> in a room. Yep. And the only thing that was missing was the heat lamps and the cigarettes uh, in the eye, poking his cigarettes in his eye. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, man, at some point they got hungry, and we, we, I think we We ordered sushi. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I'd never had sushi before myself at that time. But you acted like it was your favorite meal, whatever it took. (laughs) That's right. And we ordered a big spread of sushi, and then 
at some point during the meal, we slid across a check for $5 million. Now this yeah. is a guy that had made 200, I think 250,000 at the most in his entire career. And we slid a check over for 5 million, which represented the signing bonus. And man, their eyes got big and, and uh, it wasn't 10 minutes later that he agreed to do a, a deal with us. And, and uh, much different than today where the players don't really visit. You just, you consummate all this on the phone with an agent. Right. Was it a real check? Could someone have cashed it or was that from your yeah, account? It was, Randy? it was the check. Yeah. Oh, it was the <laughs> check. And it was like Mickey awesome. said, Chad had made plans to go to another team. I think he was going to Carolina or something like that next. Yes. And yeah, we knew we knew that if he left, we weren't getting him. He was signing somewhere yeah. else. So we yeah. concocted this idea with this check, slid it across. I remembered it as being $7 million. It was crazy money back in those days. <laughs> we slide it across the desk and say, you can go to Carolina, but here's $7 million. You're walking out the door right here on the table. Next thing That's you know, right. we had sushi and, and, it, and it worked. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and Bill Polian, I think, was a GM in, in yeah. uh, Carolina at the time and was was really pissed off about, about not having <laughs> the opportunity to, to, yeah. to uh, visit with him. But look, all, all's fair in love of war at, uh, uh, during free agency, right? Yeah. Yes, you know, that the idea of you having to be someplace physically for things to happen and not having the flow of information, you know, and right. I, I, I can remember, you know, your guys' great buddy, Jim Hazlitt, was going to be the head coach of the Seahawks, and I was on the beat, <laughs> and I went to the airport to meet him, right? You guys were going to hire Haz. And, uh, you know, he's flying whatever. They put him on – he was on – coach you know flying flying from pittsburgh he's got no idea during the whole flight that freaking mike holmgren's agreeing to come in right so being crack reporter i'm at the airport i i'm standing on the curb and randy was there to pick him up but i see has coming across and he and i introduce myself i'm talking to him hey and he's like hey man what's going on he's got no clue that he's got no chance right i mean this is going to be his dream job right but he's got no clue because information doesn't travel he yeah. doesn't have a cell phone no one's no. pinging him the agent he hasn't talked to his yeah. agent yeah. for five hours and i give him the news and the color just left his face you know and he just goes you know <laughs> and he probably went about the interview you know and had to sort of fake it through but that was the era you were in you know you, you had to sequester people and hide them and not let the information and it was it was different yeah, yep, it's definitely different. It's yeah. a it's a different era right now, and that kind of leads us into where you guys are at right now, Mickey. Just a couple questions from me. I think what you guys have accomplished there, and I'm assuming it's done. I don't know if we've entered the 2021 league year or not, but what you guys have been through there the last month is historic, if nothing else. No one's ever had to <laughs> peel back the onion like you guys have had to do. I guess my question is, when did you hatch this plan and how close to what you thought it would be has it ended up? To then I'm talking about to reduce your cap so that you're compliant with the rest yeah. of the league. Well, look, you know one thing, and and look, I'll give you credit for this, Randy. Uh, I think it's credit. It <laughs> I was going to say, uh oh, I'm uh, I'm grabbing my chair here. Listen, there there were oftentimes, you know, this this era of salary cap began in I think 1993. And uh, you and I were in Seattle together for that period. It was new to everyone. Yep. But we always really operated close to um, or just under the cap. And look, with the theory that, you know, unused cap isn't doing you any good. Right. You know, you got to it doesn't it doesn't it's 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 not benefiting your current team to have salary cap in your pocket when you can spend it and and prove your team either in terms of quality of your roster um, at the starting positions or quality of depth. And so we've often operated that way. Now, if you, 
you know, in our circumstance with Drew Brees as our quarterback for the last 15 years, every year we go into a season and we've gone into a season thinking we've got a chance to win a Super Bowl. Right. And, and uh, so we're going to do everything we can. Uh, we're going to put our chips on the table uh, um, in order to, you know, create the best team that we, we can create. And in some cases we had to kick the can down the road. Now we've always had a plan. I've always had a three year, four year view of, Hey, what's it going to look like a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. So we, we've had a plan for that. Um, and we've also had this idea and sense that we have to retool a little bit when, when Breeze finally decides that, that he's had enough. What you don't plan for is a pandemic that creates a cap of 182.5 instead of the 210 or so that we expected. Right. Um, so that, and look, there was a number of teams in, in a similar position. We were obviously at the most egregious amount above the cap, but we had a plan, you know, even before the season uh, uh, last year, when we knew that the, the salary cap was going to go down, we had a plan for how we could get under it and, and what we would do um, going forward. I, you know, the critical piece here is I don't think it, look, we can, we knew, you know, relatively quickly that it was going to be at least 175 and, and maybe a little above that. It ended up at 182.5. What we didn't know, what we still don't know is what the cap is going to be for next yeah. year. And if you had a sense of what that's going to be, it would be easier to plan. We can handle a one-year dip, you know, um, but we don't know, is this going to be a two-year dip? Is it going to be a three-year dip? We don't know that. So, um We've had, you know, we've, we've had to retool, restructure a number of contracts. We had to let probably some veterans go that we, in an ordinary year, we'd, we'd like to hang on to um, because, that you know, they're, they're, they're great teammates. They're great guys in our locker room. They're, they're contributors on the field and yet and, and give us depth. And yet we can't afford to do that. So, um, look, I give a lot of credit to to Kai Harley, who's our uh, salary cap guy, our pro personnel people who who we've talked about, okay, if, if we don't have player A, where do we go? What do we do? Can we rely on a young guy that's in the building already? Or are we going to have to go someplace else and, and get uh, a lesser salary player? And so we're still in the midst of that. Um, but I, I think that, I think that we're going to be in good shape coming, coming uh, uh, into the season. Yeah. How much did that plan then change throughout the year? Cause things change. And then how much was it contingent on what Drew was going to do? And did you, did you know pretty much, okay, this is going to be it for him. And would it have been different if he decided to keep playing? Yeah. I, I think we had a pretty good idea of where he was going to be at, but you know, it was always in his hands. You know, we, we've said to him over the last, you know, three or four years, every year, you know, we talk and, and, and we've always said, look, you can play here as long as you want to and can. And, uh, um, and, uh, you know, this was the year he finally decided that, 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 that was it for him. And, and, uh, you know, look, it's sad in some ways, but I'm not really that sad about it in the sense that, look, we signed this guy 15 years ago. I couldn't have imagined getting 15 years, um, from a player playing it the elite level he's played at for, you know, every, really every minute of it, um, except for, you know, a few times when he was injured. So uh, it's really remarkable uh, what he's been able to do for us. And, and uh, you know, we just celebrate that and appreciate it. 
Gonna be he did a, a great job signing him in the first place, by the way. Was there any competition for uh, Drew? Was there anyone else trying to sign him that you could well, think of? Well, listen, I've, I've said this a million times before about that. <laughs> I'm going to just I, sneak I, out of the room now. <laughs> I don't have any, I wouldn't, I don't have and wouldn't have any criticism of the Dolphins. They, they, they kicked the tires. They had some medical opinions. And look, we had some of those same medical opinions, by the way, but the, the, the criticism should really be to the other 10 or 12 teams that were desperate for quarterbacks and didn't even kick the tires uh, on this guy uh, um, because he had been a good player uh, for the Chargers. And, and um, it still amazes me that, that we were the only two teams that, that you know, really did their due diligence and, and, and uh, uh, had him, you know, visit and, and pursued him. That'll be a great 30 for 30 at some point. <laughs> good 30 for 30. It would be, and and uh, um, and and look, I, I, again, I'm I'm grateful that that we got him. Uh, obviously, we'd have been the underdog in that circumstance, uh, but I do remember this. You know, one one doctor that I spoke to, um, who had done a lot of baseball players and shoulders in baseball, he he said something really critical, which was, "I can't guarantee where he'll be at this year. He, you know, whether he can uh, uh, regain enough." mobility and strength to to be an effective NFL quarterback he said but I can't guarantee you that two years from now he will be and so our choice at that time we had the second pick of the draft was to draft a quarterback with that pick um or you know sign Drew and look if if you draft a a young quarterback particularly in that era uh, of football you're going to wait two or three years before you get a finished product anyway. So waiting two years uh, for, for a health reason was uh, kind of a no brainer for us. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so now here you are, Drew retires. And, you know, I think Randy and I both thought there would, maybe there was, but thought there was a, would be a bigger market for Jameis Winston. I mean, I, here's somebody who's had success in the league, obviously didn't end the way he wanted with Tampa, but there was never a point during his time in Tampa when he was going to be benched or anything. I mean, he, he was productive, um, what was, you know, at work there and did you think you might lose him, or were you surprised that there weren't more people trying to get him? Cause there's teams that need quarterbacks out there. Yeah. Well, I, look, I think number one, um, I think there were a, a number of teams that spoke yeah. with him. Um, but they, he, you know, he had a good experience here with us and, and, uh, understood the lay of the land and, and, and understood, you know, what we had to offer and, 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 and look, it's not a slam dunk, you know, that we've got Taysom Hill. And so this is going to be, you know, a competition and, and uh, we've got two good candidates, um, you know, who, who, who style of play is different. Each one of them is a little different. Um, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens, but um, uh, you know, we, we like Jameis a lot from, from his, his experience with us this last season. And I think he, it was mutual and, and, you know, we'll see what happens now. I kind of see it as in, Feel free to disagree with me, Mickey, but I see it not to disparage anything about Drew. This guy has the arm strength to make plays all over the field, to make all the throws, even more so, really, than Drew has the last couple of years. So I think he opens up the can even more for a guy like Sean. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, listen, I think I would say both of these, uh, you, you know, quarterbacks that we have in a building probably, you know, not probably, they do have, they have excellent arm strength and, and, uh, you know, Sean's one of these guys that, that uh, you know, sits in a room and concocts things built upon the strengths of the players that he has. And so, 
uh, it'll it'll look different yeah. for us. That I think for sure. One one question I have is is in, when you talk about team building, and you and I have talked about this before. Um, you've had a six foot quarterback for the last decade. Now you don't have that. But what have you done offensive line wise, just around that six foot quarterback that? Uh, Peyton Manning didn't have to do, or they didn't have to do for him in, with the Colts. Has that changed the way you've built that offensive line at all over the years? Well, I think initially, what I would say the first, uh, uh, you know, eight, seven, eight years that we had Drew, it was always, man, we we've got to have, um, for lack of a better term, ass and mass. Yeah. In the interior line, you know, oh, we had yeah. Jari Evans and Carl right. Nix, who I think at one time for a period, a stretch of period, were the two best guards in the league. And uh, uh, we had uh, Jonathan Go- Jeff Fain first and Jonathan Goodwin, who were bigger people uh, playing the center position. So we were strong up the middle um, and couldn't, you know, you, there's that spot that's, you know, four or five yards behind the line of scrimmage that we have had to protect for Drew because you know, one of the, one of his real strengths is being able to climb the pocket mm-hmm. uh, and make decisions and make throws. And so probably less important um, at the tackle position than it was to be in, in the interior. And so, right. you know, that's, that's the way we built that, uh, um, that team. But look, we've always been of the philosophy that, and you have to be good in the offensive line. If you're, if you're real strong in the offensive line, this comes back from Mike McCormick, our days with him. If you're strong in the offensive line first, then man, a lot of good things can happen for your team. And and then we put a lot of resources uh, in our offensive line. We have a third round pick at left tackle who's become one of the better left tackles in our league. Um, We've got first round picks at uh, left guard. We've got a first round pick at right tackle. We've got a first round pick at um, right guard and we've got uh, you know a second round pick at center so we put a lot of resources in our offensive line and and I think our you know our team reflects that I wanted to ask you on that because obviously to, when you have a paid quarterback like you have you have to hit on drafts and your 2017 drafts one of the greatest ones you'll ever see that's been a key to you guys staying so competitive but uh, if you're if you're going to have a paid quarterback and you're going to have a lot of resources in your offensive line did you feel like there was an area of the team that you were okay, you know, not skimping on because you're going to try your best to get the best players you can have, but maybe were there areas you felt more comfortable not paying? Well, first of all, let me say, Mike, there's a reason we were $100 million over the cap coming into this season because <laughs> we're trying to get the best players and yeah. have to, you have to pay for that at every position. But, yeah. you know, I, I think one of the keys uh, to success is – drafting well so that you have a core group of players on your team that that aren't being uh that aren't the high paid uh um people in our league you know that's coming for them um you know that 2017 class look we had to pay mike thomas last year and alvin kamara and and uh mike thomas was the year before that but alvin kamara and we got ramchek and Lattimore and and some guys that uh, you know trey hendrickson who who just uh, uh signed I think it was Cincinnati for a nice big number. You can't keep them all, um, but you have to be able to. I think in this era of football, you have to. It's even more important to draft well because you have to have part of your team that that uh, has lesser salaries, and, and those guys are like gold. I think what to me your team now and, and what you've done um, by having to let some guys go. I think you still have a really good frontline talented team where you probably have weakened yourself now, just in the depth, just depth in general. 
So you're going to yeah. have to, I'm assume, fill in with some minimum salary guys here at some point, whether it's through the draft or guys off the street that are going to have to come through for you. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, when 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 you have to reduce that, that's that's where you end up taking a hit primarily. I think is your depth. And look, we've got to do a good job, and I think we've done one credit that I want to give our our scouting staff, particularly our area scouts, is we've done a really good job with the undrafted free agents. We've had a number of guys that have that have been contributors and developed into good players. We've got a uh, you know receiver um, uh, Callaway. We've got some guys in the interior line. We've, we, you know we've we've done a good job. Our guys have done a good job finding undrafted free agents that have become not just contributors on special teams, but have helped us on offense and defense. And but that gets all the way back to those early days in Seattle when we put such an emphasis, yeah. you know, Dick Mansberger and and Mike McCormick and and that group Randy that we grew up with put such an emphasis on. Uh, undrafted free agents and and uh, you know we do that here you you started that here when when we first got here and that has continued uh, and our guys take a lot of pride in in uh, in in finding guys that end up being good players for us that come uh, as undrafted free agents it was always you know, one of my favorite times in the course of a calendar year whether it was growing up like we like you mentioned in Seattle or or down there my favorite times were signing free agents after the draft. And, you know, and, and, I, and I know that it has to be a, a little bit of a hit home for you because you were involved in that. Yeah, abs- absolutely. It's, it's, it's a fun process and it's like, it's like finding Easter eggs, right? Yeah. It's like an Easter egg hunt. And, and every once in a while you find the golden egg and, and uh, man, it just, it, it gets you so pumped up, gets our scouts pumped up. Um, when, when they find someone that, that uh, ends up being a real good player. And, and uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, it's uh, one of the funnest times that we have. And, and, and uh, you know, it's so different now than when we had the free agent signers oh, and we sent them all out. I've told these, th- you know, our guys, these hmm. stories uh, a bunch of times about uh, being up all night, our little miniature golf course facility. We had Dave Pearson set up the set up the miniature golf course. Remember, all throughout the building, there's about two hours of downtime. So we're we're waiting for the yeah. East Coast to wake up so we could sign more under undrafted free agents. Mike Market back then, Mike, you could sign 25 guys, you know. So it was a yeah, full time yeah. gig. Yeah, it was, and and uh, um, look, I remember getting Reprish all pissed off because you know he. <laughs> You and you and I would team up and beat uh, him and, and your brother or him and uh, uh, Mike Ball. Or, yeah, Mike Ball. Yeah, Tag. That's right. And uh, uh, man, that that's uh, it's funny. You would mention some, some of these names. Members. It's funny you'd mention some of these names. I'm uh, I'm holding up this media guide. It's got this great. I don't know. Can can we see Mickey and Randy I see it. both I can in there? See it. Oh gosh. Um, no, no. These are great. These are great. I've I've got when I came on the beat. Whenever in the late '90s. Um, Mickey smartly got out of there right after that. Um, he, both of you did. But, uh, you know, Dave, our buddy Dave Bowling, who was kind of my mentor, gave me these old media guides, and they are great. I got to find uh, – this is going to be on, on YouTube, too, at some point. Oh, there's a great one. Joe Vitt. Wow. Uh, Rusty Tillman, rest his soul. Yeah, just passed no the kidding. Well, look, Joe, um, Vitt, Joe, Vitt was, Joe Vitt worked for us for, you know, 10 years. He's one of the – really, uh, Sean and I were talking about this just two days ago. That um, when we when he was hired here, you know, one of the things that was diff- that's always difficult is hiring a staff, right? Yeah. So you can imagine after Hurricane Katrina, 
you know, and we're trying, he's trying to, he's a, he's a new head coach trying to hire a staff. And there were 10 jobs open that year. So there was a lot of jobs available, um, more jobs available than there were candidates. And so, you know, every guy we talked to that was, that was a noted uh, assistant coach was like, ah, I can't come to New Orleans. <laughs> I don't know what's going happening down there. You guys even going to have a city. It was yeah. One no after another. So we ended up hiring a lot of guys that got significant promotions, young, young coaches that got significant promotions. And the one guy that came that had lots of options was Joe Vitt. Um, he had a number of options to go other places and came to us and, and was really instrumental in, in uh, the success that, that our team had over the next you know, decade because of the energy that he brings and, and the quality of, of coaching. And, and really, he was the consigliere to, uh, to Sean Payton. And, and, uh, and his son, Joey, is one of our area scouts that's uh, um, responsible for some of these undrafted free agents we were talking about. We could have a whole podcast of Joe Vitt stories. Oh there could be gosh. a roast. Can we have a Joe Vitt roast at some there point? I mean, we might have to put him in a cage so he didn't come after anybody. But it would be yeah, just uh, outstanding. I mean, man, he, what listen, a... he'd be a great he'd be a great uh, uh, subject for one of these limited Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to not be. It would have to be on satellite or on streaming device where anything you say yeah. goes. There's for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. It, it, won't, it can't be censored. No, that's right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, just tremendous. Jo- Joe Vitt was, I think, strength coach under Chuck Knox, right? He came in as strength oh, coach. Yeah. And, uh, he, well, a, yeah, he yeah. came in as strength coach, but he was his <laughs> driver. He was the DB's coach. He was a strength coach. Uh, great. Who knows what else? Great relationship. He, he, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, he was also the guy that whenever somebody needed a dressing down with a lot of cuss words, Joe was the guy that, that gave it to R.J. Kors. Remember that, Randy? Oh, yeah. I, I And I can see, like it was yesterday, the outline that Mike Tice drew around his body outside the room after Ken Easley decked him out on the parking lot, you know. Oh, yeah. we Listen, I've told that story here when he was here a number of times yeah. about uh, about Kenny Easley dropping him. How did that happen? I right, let's let's tell that one, because most of our listeners aren't going to know that story. And it's poor Joe. I mean, he's done a, he's been in the league 40 years and done a million things, but he'll never be able to overcome that or top that. I mean, it's one of the greatest stories ever. Kenny Easley, for everyone who doesn't know, if you're new to football or or don't know, is one of the all-time great, not only athletes, but safeties in the history of the National Football League. He's in the Hall of Fame. League. Yeah, Hall of Famer. He's in the Hall of Fame and long time coming, but um, he was he was a badass. <laughs> Kenny Easley yeah. was a badass. So you guys take it from there. Uh, he's he's first-round pick in 81, I believe, right before you guys yeah. got there. But he, w- he was an alpha. Yeah, he was. Uh, look, I'll let Randy tell the story. I'll just I'll just set the table here with <laughs> Kenny Easy was one of these guys who was I think he was about six, two or six, three, big man, big man, 200, 210, 15 pounds and man, tough and just had one of those looks that would scare anyone. Right. <laughs> and he was a tough, tough player. He would hit anything um, and he would hit him hard. And but he was a great athlete as well. Uh, um but this this story. Go ahead, Randy. I'll let you tell it. <laughs> Kenny Easley was also a, a, a avid golfer, right? He would play golf when we'd have training camp in Cheney. He'd play nine holes. He'd make it just in time for breakfast, uh, five six days a week, right? And he would he would he play golf all the time. Well, this is kind of where the story starts. He had been playing golf all day. Uh, I think he was a member at Sahali, if I remember right. And he played golf there all the time. And 
Chuck had had charged uh, Chuck Knox, our head coach, had charged Joe Vitt with. We need a forty time on a bunch of these guys. This is in the off season, right? It's in May or something like that. He said we need to know how fast some of these young guys can run. Well, Joe was going to show his his uh, medal and get all the veterans to run too, right? Run their forty yard dash in the off season. So one day, Kenny Easley comes in after playing 36 holes of golf to, I don't know, get some Tylenol or something in the training room. And Joe Vitt accosts him and tells him, you got to go outside and run a 40 for us. And, and Kenny Easley looks at him like, what are you smoking? He said, I'm not going to run any 40. And they got into it over running a 40-yard dash. And finally, Easley said, come on, I'm tired of this. Let's just take it outside. And the minute they got outside, it was a one-punch deal. He hit Joe and Joe hit the ground on the black asphalt outside the old parking lot and went down. <laughs> Down and out, right? And Mike Tice, who you guys know, who's who's a, a great storyteller and, and a great shit disturber, right? He comes out there and Joe is, is laying there and he takes a piece of chalk and like outlines his body on the cement, on, on the asphalt. And so this this outline of this, Joe eventually comes to and comes back inside and everybody kind of has fun with it. But the outline of this chalk of Joe's body out on the asphalt stayed there for like a week. And so we all kept coming by there and wondering, what the heck is this? We ever going to get rid of this? But it's one of the all-time great stories. And, and this was in an old building down on the lake in Lake Washington. And it had to be what 1980, you know, I don't know. It was 85, maybe. Yeah, it was a long time ago. And every time I think of Joe, I always think of that story. So, yes, (laughs) he he would be worth hiring just to have around to tell that story numerous times, like I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. Didn't he not tell his wife? Or something. Didn't he tell, not oh, told his yeah, wife. Well, I was kind be. of. I'm yeah. sure an embarrassing. Well, I don't think happened. Joe told. I don't think Joe's ever told anyone that story. It's always coming from someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always coming from. Luckily, someone he's else, not a podcast listener. I don't think so. We're you don't think you don't think Joe's a podcast listener. What Joe is 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 a great storyteller. Yes. And listen, he's a great orator. He he would give. Look. He would give the Saturday night speech before our games uh, yep. at the team meeting on Saturday night, and he was fantastic. I mean, you just want to run through a brick wall for him. He, he, it was great. great uh, he's got a great gift for that um, um, to talk to a team in front of a team, and and look, he's got a lot of history in his in his bank. Um, he's got a lot of things that he draws from boxing, in particular. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, he uses analogies and, and, uh, man, it just resonates, especially yeah. with the younger players today who probably haven't heard as much of that, uh, um, like we used to when, right. when, uh, we were younger. It's like yeah. kind of a good segue here, Mickey. We, we started out, we talked about some of the history in Seattle and then obviously the great run you've had in new Orleans with people like Joe Vid and Drew Brees. As you kind of go into this next era of saints football, I'd be curious because, you know, I think people on the outside and maybe a lot of people in the league who've never been with somebody like Drew Brees don't understand um, what their leadership means to an organization. You know, and so w- like when Peyton Manning came to Denver, um, there's a huge impact. And even at the end of his career there, when he wasn't as healthy, when he left, I mean, there's a void in the building. I mean, there, there's a there's a leader there. And, you you know, I would imagine last year the, the Patriots lose Tom Brady. They had a lot of other stuff with the opt outs and whatever. But. Suddenly, Tom Brady is a huge part of the standard of what it means to be a Patriot and how we practice. And, and, and you know, he goes down to Tampa Bay and suddenly, you know, they, they not coincidentally win the Super Bowl. For, so for you, I'm sure there's some excitement of building something new. But you've been in a league for almost, almost 40 years. You've been on teams that have had all different types of quarterbacks. What's going to be lost there that isn't seen on the field or in the stats? And how do you replace it? 
Well, that that's a good question. And it's um, look, I, Sean has used this analogy. I think it's really good. It's, you know, you have your team, right? And it's like being on an airplane. And when you get on the airplane, you go left, you go through first class, right? And you see, you know, the, the, the better players, the leaders of your team sitting in first class in the front seat of first class is your head coach, your GM, maybe your owner. But when the quarterback gets on, he gets on, he goes left, he goes by all that, and he goes and gets in the pilot seat, right? And that quarterback's either going to fly you over the mountain or fly you into the mountain. And, you know, Breeze is one of those guys that's always going to fly you over the mountain. Um, he's that kind of leader. He gives that type of confidence. No one in the back is worried. Uh, you're never worried back there because you know what you've got in that front left seat, right? And so, man, when you ha- when you don't have that or it's someone new, there's a little apprehension. And and it may be, you know, with a guy like Breeze, it you know, a lot of people are going to have to pick up some of that slack um, until that mantle is taken. And um, we've got lots of candidates. We've got good leadership in our building, in our locker room. We've got a great head coach, not a good one, a great head coach that um, um, understands the leadership role and, and obviously is a great leader himself. But I think in all the all the really good teams have leadership that comes out of the locker room. And, and uh, I think we've got a lot of candidates for that. And we've got We've got a good group, so, but it remains to be seen. It, I can't tell you how it's going to get replaced or if it's going to be replaced as well. It's, 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 you know, it's just the unknown at this point, and we've got to develop that. I think it's a fun time too, because, like you said, he's left a void, but there's others on your team every year that could step up, but there's no need to, or they don't have to, or whatever. Now you're going to see really what you have throughout the rest of the locker room. Who's going to pick up yeah. the pace? Who's going to pick up that voice? Who's going to be that guy? Doesn't mean you have to go get him from somewhere else. It could be right there in your locker room, like you said. Yeah, that look, that's absolutely right. And and you know, Mike, you you uh, referenced you know a, a draft class from 2017, and and that's Alvin Kamara and and, and Marcus Lattimore and and. Uh, um, um, Ryan Ramchek, those are guys that look, you expect those guys in year four and year five to start taking that leadership mantle. You know, they've been developing that they've been, you know, leaders of some sort in the building, but those that's the group of players that you expect to take that. And we've got good leaders on defense. We've got Demario Davis and, and Marcus Williams and, and, uh, Lattimore, as I mentioned, and Cam Jordan. So, um, but, but Breeze has always, you know, filled that role and, and, uh, you're right, Randy, that oftentimes if someone's filling it, then someone else who can be a really good leader is going to take a step back. Uh, I guess we'll see the, who yeah. steps forward. The hard part is in still a little bit of the COVID era, how do you bond that team? How do you how do you change those type things when you can't gather? Do you have a vision as yeah. to how this is going to go the next couple months? Yeah, uh, look, I think that remains to be seen yet. What's going to happen in terms of an offseason? You know, what's that going to look like for our, our teams? And, you know, the good news is as this vaccine gets gets burst, uh, um, I think we're optimistic that we'll be able to do some things that are more um, in the ordinary course of business. But it still remains to be seen. And, I, I look, I agree with you. That, that, that uh, um, bonding, that leadership, that camaraderie, the chemistry that exists on a team is built in the off season. And, and, you know, one thing, as you look back at last season, I think that it was a real disadvantage for teams that had 
you know, new coaches, a lot of new personnel, maybe a new quarterback. It was a disadvantage for those teams, the way that season um, and the way the off season and the preseason uh, unfolded. And, uh, um, you know, we'll see if that remains the case this year or not. It's time for Ask the GM. As our regular listeners know, we usually finish up with Ask the GM, uh, where we take a question from somebody, you know, it could be on Twitter or wherever, and and pose it to the GM. This is Ask the GMs. We got two of them here. And so here's what we have sketched in. Are you surprised by the lack of a wide receiver market? You know, and we've seen in past years, um, Sammy Watkins a few years ago got 16 million bucks a year, you know, from Kansas City or whatever. And this year we didn't really see um, those big numbers come down. What do you guys think? Go ahead, Mickey. I'll, I'll fill in. Yeah, I look, I think a lot of times, most of the time, it's it's a question of supply and demand. And so I, th- I think there was, you know, a lot of receivers out there this year that uh, are accomplished. And then, look, whenever, you know, this $182 million cap that we've got, that puts, that puts a real pinch on a lot of teams. And so... Look, when you're when you're deciding what you're going to spend your money on, look, you may have some guys in the building that, you know, younger players like in our case, you know, we have some younger players at the receiver position that in in a different year with a different cap, we might be out in the market looking for someone. And actually, you know, we ended up letting go Emmanuel Sanders go. We would have kept him because we liked what he did. Good for player. Us. Yeah. You know, we liked uh, we liked what he brought to the table, um, but we just couldn't afford to keep him. So look, there's, there's a guy that came onto the market that no one expected. And so as you're parceling out your money, it, it's, it, look, it's all a function of supply and demand at the end of the day. I agree with all that. And, and I would only add this, Mike, is I think there are still skills, individual skills that are going to get rewarded. And we've seen some of that already. And I always go back to the kind of player I was looking for. I think fast guys are going to get paid. And I think we've seen some of that. John Ross gets a deal with the Giants. Not big money, but it's a deal because he's fast. Aguilar goes to to the Patriots because he's explosive. He's a sudden guy that can separate. Those skill sets are still big to teams. And and we just saw Will, Will Fuller take a one-year deal with the Dolphins. Fast. I mean, these are guys that even when you don't throw them the ball, they can change the way teams defend you. So that skill set is still getting paid. And I thought, Mickey, that's what kind of set those guys apart. And teams found a reason to pay those kind of guys because of they because they're fast. It's just like in the draft. Fast guys get drafted early. That's never going to change. It's always the way it is. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yep, absolutely. And Curtis Samuel was another one with some decent speed, right? Yes. For Washington. Yep. Yes, a, deal. A, good, so, a good example. Yeah, well, this time went by fast, guys. Thanks, Mickey, for coming on. This has been fun reminiscing. Let's continue this. The next time we're allowed to be, you know, in close quarters and it's safe and everything, maybe at a league meetings or something, we'll pull up a, uh, a chair and we won't have anyone recording. We'll just have a, an even better time. How does that sound? That sounds great. I, look, next time we need to talk about uh, Randy and I's record as a two-on-two basketball team because we, <laughs> we had a pretty good record, the wow. two of us, uh, over the years. That's yeah, we right. had ownership a ownership at a, at a, a asphalt park in Kirkland for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah, that? we did. We, listen, we took on a lot of competitors, <laughs> and and we didn't lose very often in those days. So you guys probably left some shock outlines out there of those guys that you uh, you yes, guys took did. down. No uh, did, did, yes. You played college. Did you play college basketball, Mickey? Yeah, just some small college stuff. Nothing at to brag, brag about. But uh, in fact, I like bragging about. Uh, 
about Randy and I's two on two record more than I like my, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. my college basketball record. But well, yeah, absolutely. I always point out, you know, Randy, Randy blushes too when I point out his <laughs> storied history as the quarterback at Linfield. So, yeah. um, listen, we have, a we have a Linfield grad that works for us, Ryan Powell. So, oh, nice. Um, actually, we have two of them, Reggie Stone and, and Ryan Powell. Well, well, I, know, you know, I know you got a couple guys in that building that can read or write at least, then that's good. Well, I I was going to go the opposite direction with that, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll We're take all it. sort of Northwest guys, I guess. I grew up in California. I did go to Whitworth College, and we had a lot of L's next to our name playing playing, <laughs> playing you guys. So we'll wrap it up on that, on that note without getting into my horrific athletic career. Thanks, everybody, for coming along, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did.